are in a series called Home, and I, and I view it as a two-part series. Uh, the, today is really the last part of part one. Um, what we've been doing is raising questions. What is home? When do, you, when do you feel like you're home? When do you feel like you're not home? What do, what do we do with our longing for home? How do we find our true home with God? That's kind of what we've been dealing with. Uh, next week, Marty Voltz, an old friend, is going to be here and preach. He knows we're in a series on home, so he'll address it, but I told Marty he could do whatever he wants, so I'm going to let Marty do whatever he wants. And then uh, in two weeks, we'll be back in this series on home, but we're going to really look at home while living in exile. So we're going to look at, the Bible has a lot to say about that, and we're going to spend quite a few weeks looking at what does it mean to be in exile, and can we learn from those who have gone before us in exile? And as we've been going along, I've been trying to share stories just to get us thinking about home. What is home? When are we home? When are we not home? And I, and I, I remember this. I was really praying and thinking about this series when we were on vacation. I kind of started it kind of when we got back from vacation. This was about a little over a month ago. We, the Knit family drove, and we, were, we drove a long way. <laughs> So we had to drive a long way back, and we, our last night of vacation, we stayed in a hotel. And the weather was nice, and we stayed, we didn't know much about the hotel, it wasn't crazy fancy, but it had one of those indoor-outdoor pools. You know those pools? I like those pools. And Jay and I were having so much fun, we were, we were playing tag, we were being real careful the other people, but we were playing responsible tag between father and son, running inside and outside in the pool. We were having a great time, but the water was cold, so Kami wasn't coming in. And she was sitting, reading her phone, and relaxing on last night of vacation, and she starts scrolling through social media, and lo and behold, there's tornadoes <laughs> right by our house. And so, I mean, you guys know, you lived through it, right? In DeKalb and Sycamore, there were tornadoes here, and she's scrolling through, and, and I remember telling her, you know, it's kind of crazy, we're coming home. And, and I think everyone's had this intense experience of tornadoes, and we totally missed out on it. Now, it might not have been intense because there were so many pictures on Facebook. Kami's like, I thought people were supposed to be in their basements. It seems like everybody's on their porch taking pictures of these things. But I don't know. We weren't here. It's, uh, but we kind of missed out on the tornadoes. Sometimes things like that happen, and you feel like you're not home. You're not a part of the community because you weren't a part of some intense experience. But what we're talking about today, to kind of wrap up this part of talking about finding our home in God, we're going to talk about an experience, an experience of the living God, the true God that really no one misses out on. That God wants to make his home with you and me. We're going to look at a few select verses, one really in particular, but I want to journey through the Gospel of John chapters 14 and 15 and I'll reference 16 and 17. It's called the Upper Room Discourse. If you've never read it, I highly recommend you take a look at it this week. I actually mentioned some of these verses earlier in our series. John 14, if you want to flip there or turn in your phone, begins with Jesus talking about the Father's house and many rooms and that Jesus is going before us to prepare a place. And Thomas says, wow, that sounds awesome. I want to go to the Father's house, basically, but how do we get there, Jesus? And Jesus says, John 14, 6, it's one of these incredible verses for Christians. Jesus says, I am the way, Thomas. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the centrality of Jesus. And Philip says, well, well Jesus, show us the Father and that'll be enough. 
And Jesus says, well, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Or we could say it this way, Jesus looks at Philip and says, oh, dear Philip, I've been showing you the Father for as long as you've known me. (laughs) It's the good news of Christianity is that to encounter Jesus Christ is to encounter God himself. To understand who Jesus is is to understand what God is like. And this is good news. Jesus Christ is the way to the Father's house. The Father's house is the house of love, and there's plenty of room. And that's good news. Well, Jesus is going to go on to prepare his disciples. He's going to be leaving them. They don't understand why. He's clear, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. It's going to be hard for you. I'm going to be persecuted and suffer. And because of that, you're going to be persecuted and suffer. But I'm going to send the helper, the Holy Spirit. He's going to live with you. He's going to dwell in you. In verse 17, he's going to live among you. And he's going to give you everything you need. It's one of these tensions that we find. There's all kinds of tensions in Christianity. Jesus is like, yeah, it's going to be hard. And you're going to suffer. But I'm also going to provide everything you need. And you're going to be fine. In the Gospel of Matthew, I was actually talking with somebody about this this week. Matthew's Gospel, Jesus kind of says it this way. The road is narrow and hard. Few people choose it because it's filled with obstacles. But if you choose Jesus as the way, even though it's narrow and hard, you will discover that that the yoke is easy and the burden is always light. And somehow as you wrestle with these tensions of a hard, narrow road with many obstacles, and yet at the same time a journey where your burden is light, sometimes it feels confusing and paradoxical, but I'm going to tell you, in Jesus, this all makes sense. That's why Christianity falls apart without Jesus. Once you begin to follow him, it all begins to make sense. He is everything we believe. Well, Jesus is going to talk a little bit about the Holy Spirit, And then he's going to get in another conversation, and Judas, not as scary, is going to ask him a question. And we're going to see John 14, 23, which is really what brought me back to these chapters this week. Jesus says to Judas, but to all of them, if anyone loves me, he says this to you and me too, if anyone loves me, if if anyone keeps my word, if anyone obeys what I command, because Jesus is teaching us about life and love, he's commanding us to live with love. He says, if anyone loves me, if anyone keeps my word, my father will love him or her. And we will come to them, and we will make our home with them. But what a promise. And again, you have this tension because John 14 begins with Jesus saying, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you in the father's house, the house of love. And at the same time, he's like, but the Spirit's going to come to you, and the Father and I are going to come to you, and we're going to make our home with you. And somehow it's confusing and paradoxical. But I'm telling you, if you follow Jesus, it all begins to make sense. So you can ask the question, where does God live? Well, on one level, we could say theologically and be accurate that he's omnipresent. That's a fancy theological word. God is everywhere, always. In some ways, you'd be hard-pressed to come up with a wrong answer to where God is. But if you ask the question, where is his home? I mean, what do you picture? Maybe you picture kind of like Thomas did, some home somewhere out there, far away, somewhere up there, like out out, out of reach, out of touch. Jesus here is talking to his disciples about hard stuff that's coming their way. 
He says, I'm going to send you a helper, a comforter, an encourager, a counselor, an advocate, a friend, the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God with you, with us. And then in verse 23, and if you love me and keep my word and my, my father will love you and we will come to you and we will make our home with you. Let that sink in for a second. Jesus is saying, for those who follow me, who love and obey me, who trust me, we, God the Father and God the Son, will come to you through God the Holy Spirit. That makes three, the entire Trinity, and we will make our home with you. So where is God's home? Well, if you are a Christian, wherever you are right now is the answer to that question. If you're watching online or if you're here with us outside, you are God's home. You, everywhere you go, God is right at home with you. With great delight, God inhabits the soul of the one who loves him. And I want to make a distinction here between feeling alone and feeling abandoned or unwanted. You may still feel alone at times because the road is narrow and hard. Because if you follow Jesus, he was persecuted and you likely will suffer and be persecuted too. You may feel alone. I can tell you I have felt more alone and lonely over the last 18 months than I think I did the previous five years. There's a lot of loneliness going around. I think we will feel alone because the road is narrow and hard. But I want you to be able to distinguish the difference between feeling alone and feeling abandoned. You are never abandoned, and you are never unwanted. God is for you, and God makes his home with you. He literally will live anywhere. God is not afraid to get his hands dirty. He's not afraid of you, and he's not afraid of your sin. He wants to make his home with you. Now, and I do, again, recommend this. Keep reading through John this week, maybe even this afternoon. Living in the Father's house, finding your home with God, has a lot to do with abiding in Jesus. I love John 15. Jesus says, abide in me and I will abide in you. I love that word, abide. It's not a word I use a lot. Some translations will say, remain with me, Jesus says, or stick with me. But abide, abide is very similar to the word abode. They're connected. Jesus is saying, make your home with me. Again, it's the paradox, but make your home with me and I will make my home with you. Jesus invites us to live with him. Jesus says, I'm both taking the initiative and making the invitation. <laughs> Please accept my invitation and my initiative. I want very much to live with you. Then you're going to keep reading through John 15 and Jesus is going to add to this, not only does God want to make his home with you, but he also says, I no longer call you servants. I now call you friends. Let me say it this way. If the gospel were that you and I could meet God, the creator of everything, if we could just meet God and serve God, if we could wait on God, that would be good news, wouldn't it? To just be servants of the living God. But Jesus, the, the good news of the gospel is that it's even better than that. We're, we're more than servants. We're, we're family and friends. God in Christ invites us to live with him, and he makes his home with us, an experience all of us get to have. So let me kind of stretch this out in a little bit of an illustration that may be helpful for you. I want you to picture in your mind a celebrity that you think it would be cool to meet. Or in my case, somebody I think would be cool to meet, but I'm like, a family member would just 
would fall off their chair if they knew you met this person, right? So I haven't asked my son Jay. He loves basketball. I haven't asked him recently, but a few years ago, he would have said Steph Curry. Steph Curry is this basketball player, celebrity he'd love to meet. I want you to picture a celebrity, and I want you to imagine we, we live in some place exotic, maybe like California on the coast. You watch those TV shows of all these fancy houses. But you and I, we, we, are, we are servants, our, our vocation. And so pick what you want to pick. You're either in lawn care or pool maintenance or house cleaning. I'm going to pick pool maintenance because it's sunny and I want to be by a pool. So I get a call, I go to this new house, I've never been here before, I have to go through, I don't know what Steph Curry's house is like, but I'm going to imagine, I go to this gate, I got to get permission to go through this, this big wall, this opening gate, and I, I head in and I get the, the bill and it says S. Curry and the address and I'm heading to the pool and I'm, I'm like, ooh, maybe this is somebody I, I know, maybe somebody famous, but I'm not sure, it's a massive house, this person's doing well in life. And the person at the, the gate catches me and says, okay, I, I hope you know whose house this is. This is Steph Curry's house, but I want you to handle Mr. Curry with great respect. You know, don't be going crazy. Just do your work and leave. And okay, I'm going to do that. And you head in, you got your uniform on, you find the pool, or you're doing the house cleaning or the lawn care for your celebrity. And start getting ready to clean the pool. And all of a sudden, Steph Curry comes outside. He walks up to me, extends his hand, and says, hey, I'm Steph. I'm, hey, Mr. Curry, my name is Jeff. Nice to meet you. Oh, you can call me Steph. He's like, hey, Jeff, you know what? I kind of want to have a fun day of fellowship today. I hope you don't mind. I bought the company you work for. I kind of changed your plans for the day. I'm wondering if you could just hang out with me. I'm sponsored by Under Armour. I got a ton of swimsuits in there. Why don't you go put a swimsuit on and let's just, just hang out in the pool? So we hang out in the pool, we play basketball, he beats me in horse, just barely. We dry off, we get some lemonade, we start talking, he's talking about his family, telling him about mine. He's like, hey, Jay and Kami sound cool. And I've got this whole wing of the house I never use. Why don't you move in? Why don't you live with us? I mean, just imagine for you, I could imagine before Curry comes and talks to me, I could imagine calling Jay and being like, Jay, guess what? I'm at Steph Curry's house. He's like, no way. I'm going to work on his pool. Take a picture, Dad. I can't wait to tell my friends that you worked on Steph Curry's pool. But now I call Jay and I'm like, uh, Jay, uh, Steph Curry wants us to move in with him. <laughs> I mean, again, it's just an illustration, but do you understand what God is doing through Christ? God himself calls you friend and makes his home with you. I mean, what does that tell you about God? Think about it. God's home is with his people. Of all the places God could make home, he chooses to live with us. He chooses to live in the cubicle with you at work, even when you're overwhelmed or frustrated or demeaned. He chooses to live with you in your classroom or when you can't find anyone to sit with at the lunch table. He chooses to live in your house, even in the places you feel completely unseen. He chooses to live uniquely in our church when we gather together to celebrate him. He chooses to live with you even in those places you wish he wouldn't, either due to your shame or your sin or both. In fact, I was chatting with somebody this week, a really life-giving conversation to me, and 
We both share a shame journey, and this person was sharing some of their shame journey with me and how they were finding good news in Jesus. And they were saying that they were listening to a podcast, and the person was saying, you know, God comes to us. And he says, I'm going to crawl into this shame pit with you, into this place where you think, will you, will you, will you think you're alone? Where you think you're a bit, where you think no one would dare take up residence with you. God says, I'm going to crawl into the shame pit with you so you can see me seeing you. So that you know that none of this scares or embarrasses me. God just keeps coming again and again and again. I want to make my home with you. I want to make my home with you. This is the God who sees you and knows you in your best moments, in your worst moments. He wants to make his home with you. He's not afraid of you. He's not embarrassed by you. He wants to be with you. And I thought this would be a good place to do a little bit of theology I want to talk because a lot of John, John does a lot of work in helping us understand the Trinity. And I, I want us to see why it would be good news for God to live with you. So I'm going to read a little bit if it's okay. I thought sometimes it's windier out here and I'm like reading would be good because I can hold my pages down. But I'm going to read first a paragraph from C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. If you haven't read that book, it's a great book. Sometimes this first section is a little tricky, but once you get into section two, I mean, Lewis just does this amazing job of talking about life with God. And this is what Lewis, as he begins to talk about the Trinity, he says, this is kind of how the theology of the Trinity started. He said, people already knew about God in a vague way. There is a God. But then came a man, Jesus, who claimed to be God, and yet he was not the sort of man you could dismiss as a lunatic. And Jesus made them believe in him. They met him again in his resurrection after they had seen him killed and crucified. And then after they had been formed into a little society or community, they found God was somehow now living inside of them as well, directing them, making them able to do things they could not do before. And when they worked it all out, they found they had arrived at the Christian definition of the three-personal God. Or I'm going to read a little bit more from Tim Keller's book, Reason for God. He does a great job of talking about why, why the Trinity is amazing. He says, the doctrine of the Trinity means that God is, in essence, relational. The Gospel of John does a lot of work to describe the Trinity. In John chapter 1, John describes the Son as living from all eternity in the bosom of the Father, John 1.18, which is an ancient metaphor for love and intimacy. When we get into our section in chapter 16, Jesus, the Son, describes the Spirit as living to glorify him. When we get into John chapter 17, we, we find that the Son also glorifies the Father, and the Father, the Son, and that this has been going on for all eternity. What does the term glorify mean, Keller asks? Well, to glorify something or someone is to praise and joy and delight in them. When something is useful, you are attracted to it for what it can bring you or do for you. But if it is beautiful, and remember I've said if you read through the Bible and see the word glory, reread it with the word beauty. When it's beautiful, then you enjoy it simply for what it is. Just being in its presence is its own reward. To glorify someone is also to serve or defer to him or her. Instead of sacrificing their interests to make yourself happy, 
You sacrifice your interests to make them happy. Why? Because your ultimate joy is to see them enjoy. Thus, Keller continues, the inner life of the triune God is utterly different. It's other. It's what we call holy. The life of the Trinity is characterized not by self-centeredness, but by mutual self-giving love. When we delight and serve someone else, we enter into a dynamic orbit around him or her. We center on the interests and desires of the other. And that creates, I love this, a dance. Particularly if there are three persons, each of whom moves around the other two. So it is, the Bible tells us, each of the divine persons center upon the others. None demands that the others revolve around him. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to, and rejoices in the others. And that creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. Why do we want to make our home with God? Because life becomes a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. <laughs> A life of adventure. You're not just surviving, you're thriving, you're living. Keller says, if God is triune, then loving relationships and community are the great fountain at the center of reality. Outside of Christianity, and there are, I mean, we just had two people share other communities outside of Christianity, where people might even say God is love. But when they say that, I think they often mean that love is extremely important or that God really wants us to love. But in the Christian conception, and this is unique to Christianity and our understanding of the Trinity, God really has love as his essence. If he was just one person, he couldn't have been loving for all eternity. According to the Bible, this world was not created by a God who is only an individual, nor is it the emanation of an impersonal force. It is not the product of power struggles between personal de deities, nor of random, violent, accidental, natural forces. Christians reject these other creation accounts, which refuse to give love primacy. We believe the world was made by a God who is a community of persons who have loved each other for all eternity. You were made for mutually self-giving, other-directed, cruciformed, co-suffering love. Self-centeredness destroys the fabric of what God has made. If you go against the grains of love, you get shards in your skin. Finally, from Keller, so we can truly say that ultimate reality is a community of persons who know and love one another. That is what the universe, God, history, and life is all about. If you favor money, power, and accomplishment over human relationships, you will dash yourself on the rocks of reality. When Jesus said you must lose yourself in service to find yourself, he was recounting what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been doing throughout eternity. You will then never get a sense of self by standing still, as it were, and making everything revolve around your needs and your interests. Unless you are willing to experience the loss of options and the individual limitation that comes from being in committed relationships, you will remain out of touch with your own nature and the nature of things. Again, that's from Keller's book, The Reason for God. But let me kind of drive this home. If love is ultimate reality, then you kind of have a choice. You can either live in the house of love with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a pulsating dance 
of joy and love. Or you can live in what I'll call this morning the house of lies. The house of lies is simply a powerful illusion. It seems real, but it's untrue. It is ultimately unreality. It comes to us from the father of lies. And it only seems to exist because its captives don't know the greatest truth of our existence. That God is love. That's ultimate reality. God is love. That's the truth. The house of lies is where Jesus' teachings of love are an absurd impossibility. In the house of lies, there's never enough. There's not enough for you and me. In the house of lies, there's a constant sense of scarcity, which is why we have to fight among ourselves because there's just not enough to go around. We want to get our share before somebody else does. In the house of lies, everybody is a competitor that has to be bested. In the house of lies, life is a game to be won rather than a gift to be lived. The house of lies is filled with hate and violence and uncontrollable anger and fear. In the house of lies, friendships are mostly just alliances that are convenient until they're not anymore. In the house of lies, Satan is the instigator of accusation and the insider of anxiety. He rules in the house of lies. But it's false. It's not reality. So if you dare to believe that God is love, if you dare to believe that God is revealed to us through the person of Jesus, if you dare to believe that God is for you, that God loves you, then you will discover that you don't have to live in the house of lies anymore. You can come home. God wants to make his home with you. You can live in the house of love. So settle your mind on this. God is love. Settle your mind on this. I am loved by God, and he will never stop loving me. God is love. I am loved by God, and he will never stop loving me. The Trinity is constantly giving and receiving love. Eternal love is flowing around and around. There's a dance, and you're invited to participate in it, to join the dance, to live with God. God is most clearly revealed in the mystery of the Trinity, a community of eternal, self-giving, co-suffering, cruciform love. And as you come home, as you allow the Father, Son, and Spirit to make their home with you, as you sit in the house of love, I think you will find all the fear, all the hatred, all the anger, somehow it just washes away. And even though you're suffering, even though you're persecuted, even though you might feel alone, even though you can say with clarity, this road is hard. It's narrow. There's many obstacles. You will also discover that your burden is light. And somehow you're freer and more whole than you've ever been. Allow the Trinity to love you. God is, in many ways, love-seeking expression. Allow yourself to be washed clean of all that is hateful and harmful and fearful. And honestly, this is gift. This is grace. You don't have to do anything, per se. You just need to sit in the presence of your Savior and Lord. Just sit with Jesus. Just sit in a chair in the sun next to Jesus. You're not his servant anymore. You're his friend. You now live with him. 
Just sit in that presence. There are problems and difficulties, but everything's going to be okay because you are loved by the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You are embraced into their love. They've let you into their love. They want to make their home with you. Would you do that this morning? Would you let the Trinity make home with you? Would you trust Jesus? He loves you. He's not afraid to meet you where you are and take you into a dance of pulsating joy in life. Amen? Let's pray. Oh God, give me today, give us today a strong and vivid sense that you are by our side. In a crowd or when we're by ourselves, in business or in leisure, in sitting down or in rising, may we always be aware of your presence beside us. By your grace, O oh God, we will go nowhere today where you cannot come. Nor could we seek anyone's presence that would rob us of yours. By your grace, we will let no thought enter our heart that might hinder our closeness with you nor let any word come from our mouth that is not meant for your ear. So shall our courage be firm. Because, God, it takes courage to believe that ultimate reality is love, that what has always been for eternity is love. It takes courage. In a world of so much hate and fear and anger, it takes a lot of courage to stand against that and say, no, no, that's not real. That's the house of lies. What's real is the house of love. And Jesus has prepared a place for us, and he wants to take us home, make our home, give us peace, give us rest. So today, Jesus, we sit right now in the basking of the shade or the glory of the sun. Maybe we're in our own homes at home watching online, but we sit in your presence. We rest in your presence. We dare to live in the house of love, <laughs> to expose the lies of the father of lies, and to accept reality, and to be people who live that reality. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.